Meanwhile, we are in Hebrews. Bible's in the back. Grab one if you don't have it. We are in chapter 3, studying this wonderful book of Hebrews in which we title this series called Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. We are in chapter 3, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are in chapter 3, verse 7. We will go through chapter 3, verse 19 today. So hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not though all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Well, our verse this our verses this morning begins with again, like it did last week, the word therefore. We have to ask, what is therefore, therefore? I will give a a quick review as we're getting deeper into the book. It goes quicker and quicker, right? Because we want to get to the text. But the book of Hebrews, divinely inspired by God, is making much of who Jesus is. Making much of who Jesus is to this very Jewish congregation who are under persecution. Severe persecution. And the author's primary purpose was not, listen, follow these five steps to freedom or, or do these three things and you will make friends and influence people. His primary purpose in writing this letter to these persecuted people was for them to have a, a sense of awe, to, to, to stir their deepest affections, to see with their spiritual eyes, to, to be gripped by the hearts by the heart, on the supremacy, the superiority, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that exhortation in the book of Hebrews was given to them so that they would remain faithful, they would mature, they would press on in their relationship with Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution. Now, for us this morning, I just want to throw this out there. When we are in hard times, we're in difficult times, when we're in difficult circumstances, we have choices to make. We could look at our circumstances and through our circumstances to see Jesus and, and be bogged down by our circumstances. Or we could look at Jesus through Jesus to our circumstances. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. It depends on what our eyes are fixed on. Paul writes to the Second Corinthians to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, that they are not to lose heart. He tells them, don't lose heart. And he, and he explains why. He says, you know, we're afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but, but not despaired. We are persecuted. We're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We carry around the marks of Jesus, but don't lose heart. He will come. He will raise our bodies to death, to, 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 to resurrection life. And then he says this, very interesting. In the context of all that, he says this. For this light momentary affliction. What is it light? What is it momentary? To the reality of Christ. To the eternal life of Christ. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. Anything this life can throw at you. 
as we look to not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternally saying, focus on Christ. See your circumstances through the beauty and glory of Christ. The things of this world are temporal. They're passing away. Look at the beauty and glory of Jesus. This mainly Jewish congregation was tempted to go back. Go back to ritualism. Go back to the Mosaic law, to regulations. The law that Moses gave us was a mediator for God to man. They were, they, were, they were returning to those things for their hope. They were returning to those things of this world for their refuge. And the author says, no, 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 no. Listen, Jesus is better. Jesus is far more better. He is far greater. He is superior than anything this world has to offer. And, and, and then while declaring, to, declaring the, the beauty and glory of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, he begins this litany of things that Jesus is better. We looked at already, he is better than angels. Last week we looked, he transitioned from better than angels that he's better than Moses, remember from last week. That, that Jesus received more glory than Moses. Why? Because Moses was a servant in God's house, yet Jesus Christ is the son over God's house. That's God's people. And now the author this morning is picking up on that theme of of Jesus' greater glory than Moses, and he continues on his theme by warning us not to let our hearts become hard, as some of them did under the leadership of, the servant of Moses. He's continuing on that theme. So three things we're going to see this morning. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11, and we'll see the the example of an unbelieving heart that this author sets out for us to see. Then we're going to jump down from after verse 11 to verse 15, and he kind of gives this explanation of why they were unbelieving, what was going on with the people of Israel in the time, the example of Israel, the explanation of Israel, and then we'll go back to verse 12 and really look at the exhortation to the believing heart. If you're here this morning, you believe, what is the exhortation for you? So that's where we're headed. Follow along with me. Number one, Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. Let me ask this question before we move forward. And, and, and I'll speak on behalf of me, and y'all could just shake your head like, yeah, me too. Why are we so often, why do we so often ignore warning signs? Why do we cling so tightly to the things we know that are going to really wreak havoc in our lives? Things we know that are in disobedience. Things that we know that are going to harm us, but we just don't let go. Everybody. There's a man by the name of Harry Randall Truman. If you don't know him, he was a man. He was an owner and a caretaker of Mount St. Helen Lodge at Spirit Lake near the foot of the mountain in Washington Washington State. In 1980, the volcanic mountain was showing signs of a major eruption. And one expert actually said the chances of it erupting is 100%. Yet this man has been there, he's 80-something years old, went through all kinds of storms, and he's like, I'm not leaving. Despite signs like uh, smoke plummeting and and earthquakes, things going on, he refused to leave the cabin. From what I understand, the government sent people, the police, everybody went. His friends told him, look, you got to get out of here. Even his family said, listen, you got to leave. They begged him. He said, I'm not going. Okay. May 18, 1980. Massive eruption takes place. The lava flows from the mountain and right where he lived. Just like they said, 150 feet of volcanic debris covered him, his house, the lodge, and he's buried under there. 150 feet. That's a tall building. He just couldn't let go. Despite the warnings he's received, he just could not let go. And maybe you're here this morning and today's the warning for you. Today's the warning for you. You built your house at the foot of the volcano. Over and over saying you got to repent. You got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The eruption is coming. Danger is coming, but you don't want to change. Well, today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day we pray that you would give your life to Jesus Christ. The bad news for us and for you is that destruction is coming. The good news is you're here. You're awake. I think everybody's awake. You can respond in faith and trust in Christ today. And for those who have already done, this is a day to listen to the warnings as well. There's an encouragement in here for you. There's an example. 
that's been given to us to warn us. And that example is the story of the Exodus, chapter, seven, uh, chapter, verse, uh, chapter 3, 7 and following. It's the story of the ex- Exodus, and we're going to look at that story in a minute. But one thing I want to point out, look at verse 7 with me real quickly. It says, therefore, what? As the Holy Spirit says. As the Holy Spirit says. If you have a Bible, and in your Bible, your margin all of a sudden was perfectly even, and then it shrunk, and it's in the middle. They do that to let you know that it's a direct quote from the Old Testament, just so you know. That was free. He's quoting Psalm 95. We believe it was David who wrote it. We're not really sure even who, but we believe it was David. But, but notice what he says. This Holy Spirit said. So no matter who the human author was, God spoke. God, the Holy Spirit, is ultimately the one who writes Scripture. He inspired the Old Testament as he inspired the New Testament. God is the author of Scripture, 2 Peter 1. It's when God, uh, it says, when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. The Holy Spirit says. Also notice what we're going to learn in our text this morning. That the Old Testament stories is relevant for us this morning. It was relevant for them in that day and it's relevant for us this morning. Because the Old Testament is written, listen, for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul rehearses again this, 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 this movement of Israel with Moses and how they passed through the sea and they ate spiritual food. They drank the spiritual rock, which is Christ. He said, but God wasn't pleased with them in 1 Corinthians 10. And he goes on to write these words, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. I'm writing these things to you now. That these things happened as examples for us, New Testament. That we should not crave evil things as they crave them. Okay? And then he goes on to write, that's in verse 6. In verse 11. Verse 6. Now verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, These things happened to them. These Old Testament stories that I'm reminding the New Testament church, the Corinthian church. These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. You hear what Paul is saying? And this, 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 narrow, uh, this writer of Hebrews, the historical things that occurred to and in Israel were for our spiritual benefit, for our instruction, for our edification. We're, we're to learn, we're to grow. We're even to receive warnings from these texts. Now I realize we, when you read the Old Testament, again, this is free as well, you read it in light of the New Testament. Jesus come. He's revealed to us. So we are to read the Old Testament and be instructed in the Old Testament in light of Christ. But we're not to dismiss the Old Testament as one pastor said. You've heard us talk about it here. We unhitch the Old Testament. We've got to get rid of it. It's ridiculous. It's for our edification. Paul the Apostle said so. I'm listening to Paul. The Holy Spirit has inspired the writings of And here in Exodus we read, or here in Hebrews, which is talking about Exodus, is for our example. Look with me again, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, quoting Psalm 95 of an incident that took place in Israel. Okay, you understand that? He's quoting Psalm 95 of something that took place in Israel. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in those days. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me, that's the Lord, to the test. He saw my works. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. Heart of the matter. They have not known my ways. And therefore, verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What, what, what's going on in that story? What is the Exodus all about? If you're not familiar with Exodus, let me just bring you up to speed. Exodus picks up where Genesis, the first book of the Bible, leaves off. God dealing with his people, the Jewish people. Exodus means departure. Exodus traces events from, for Israel, uh, from the time that Israel entered into Egypt. If you know the story, Joseph was in Egypt. He got, if you remember, he got beat up and left for dead by his brothers. Sweet bunch of guys. Uh, wanted to kill him and left him for dead. Uh, he was then uh, brought to Egypt as a slave. He went to jail. I mean, his life was just a mess, but God used it all because he's sovereign. God used the whole thing to feed his brothers and his fathers. 
because there was a famine in Israel and they had to go to Egypt. And then guess who's there? Joseph. He's like, oh, I know you guys. Remember? But God did all this so I could feed you some food. Y'all can live. Well, a little time passed. They found themselves at a place with a king that didn't really care about Joseph. Even though Joseph had raised the power on the Pharaoh, now there was a new Pharaoh. And you know what? Joseph was the nobody. So they put the Israelites in slavery. So Israel's in slavery in Egypt. And what does God do? God hears their cry. God hears their torment and sees their torment. They're crying out for help. They're under cruelty and slavery in Egypt. And God sends them who? Moses, the deliverer, right? Moses (laughs) meets God at a burning bush and (laughs) God tells Moses, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go so that they may serve me and worship me. It's not just... Just go to freedom and do whatever you want. God says, let my people go. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they could serve me and worship me. But he refused. You know that. And then the people of Israel, it's really important, just stood back and watched God do some powerful, amazing, miracle things to set them free. The plagues, remember the plagues, the ten plagues ending with the the death of the firstborn, the institution of the first Passover. They're, they're, They're leaving. Remember the sea, the Red Sea opens up. Through the, the Israelites go through the Red Sea, and then the marching army comes after them, Pharaoh's army, and bam, they get, they get wiped out. They get into the promised land, and they, excuse me, they get into the wilderness, and God feeds them from heaven, gives them water from a rock, gives them victory over his enemies, writes his law on the, on the, on the stone with his own hand. His presence is this pillar of, 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 of a cloud during the day, so they know where they're going, and fire comes at night, all this All this, God is providing, and they did not do one thing for their freedom. And you would think, after seeing God do all this miraculous work, this this great provision, they would be a generation of faithful men and women. Nope. Nope. Rather than trust the Lord to supply their needs, something that he had done over and over and over again, what did they do? They rebelled. They whined. They complained against him. Exodus 17. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? And our children, our livestock with thirst. Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he really there? Is he really providing? That's, excuse me, that's the heart of the issue, right? The heart is the seat, that, that, that center of our lives. There are thoughts and emotion, desires come from the heart. And these people's hearts were turning away, and their actions and their attitude and their thoughts and their belief showed that. And Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 8 through 8, 7 and 8, 9 and 10, really are about the story of the Exodus. Psalm 95 picks up that story as well. If you turn to Psalm 95, verse 7, it says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did on that day of Massa in the desert. Now, Massa means testing, Meribah means quarreling, and that's exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness. They tested the Lord, they quarreled against the Lord, they didn't trust the Lord. They demanded things from God rather than trusting God. They knew he could provide. He had already done so. A God who is continually being tested, a God who continually is not being trusted, will eventually lead us to hardened hearts. It happens in relationships. You ever lose trust on someone? It's really hard to build back up again. And there's a further separation that takes place when the trust is not there. They had everything before them. In the wilderness, God was providing. They had wonderful, miraculous signs. They had all the hopes when they left Egypt in slavery. They were going to the promised land. Yet if you read the story, 600,000 men 
died in the wilderness. Only two people made it to the promised land at 40 years of wandering. Only two. Everyone else fell dead. And one of the things that we can learn from that is, is this. It's, it is possible to begin well and to end poorly. One of the main rebellions, and I think that Psalm 95 and here in um, Hebrews, uh, one of the main rebellions, we heard some already, is um, when, if you remember the story, if you know the story, they were at the edge of the promised land and the spies were sent out. Do you remember that? Twelve spies. Ten of the spies came back and gave a bad report. Two of the spies, you know who they were? Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Two of them said, no, we got this. Ten said, we don't got this. And there was a, an actual argument broke out. They, were, they wanted to kill uh, 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 Joshua and Caleb for that story. And God said this in, in, in uh, Numbers. I believe it was in Numbers. Yeah, Numbers 14. Listen to this. God answered, The glory of the Lord appeared on the tent of the meetings to all of Israelites, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt, disdain? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? You see? Unbelief, hardening of hearts, there's, there's contempt, there's, there's a disdain in this unbelief, refusing to believe. And this unbelief led to contempt, to disdain. That's what happens. Kent Hughes in his commentary writes this, I thought it was very good. He said, so we are, le- we are not left in the dark regarding the hard-heartedness that the Psalms warned us against. Or here, Psalm 95, of the story of Israel. He says, in fact, the scriptural description of it is mercifully clear, mercifully clear, because it even presents us with telltale behavioral signs of hard-heartedness. Listen, hardness of heart originates in unbelief, which produces contempt in God, which in turn shows itself in distinct behavioral patterns, negativity, grumbling, quarreling, disobedience. Ouch. Right? Quarreling, negativity, disobedience. That's what the author has in mind when he says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. In other words, they, they stray in their hearts from trusting in God. And this example is for us today. And you're thinking, man, I didn't come to church for this. <laughs> I've studied all week long. If we compare our lives to this Exodus story, we recognize that we, through faith in Christ, trusting in Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the grave, we have been brought out of slavery to sin, death, and hell, and brought to, delivered to, the kingdom of his beloved son into new life. And like Israel, we are headed toward a land. We have a journey to a heavenly place, to, to the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to get into that as we keep going through Hebrews. And, 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 and there, here's the point. Israel endured this testing through their wilderness experience and in some ways until we reach that final resting place in Christ with the new heavens and the new earth, we too are in that place of testing and trials. Kind of answers the question, why does God allow things to go wrong? Why, why are things so hard? We're not in the promised land yet. And I do not mean Israel. It's a new heaven and a new earth, a redeemed, renewed earth we are promised with new resurrected bodies. That's our inheritance. Every Christian is tested. We're all tested and tried during this walk. We should learn from the example, Right? We learn to, don't, don't harden our hearts, don't grumble, don't quarrel, don't treat God with, with contentment, but trust him. The example. Now look at the explanation. Now I just want to look at this for a few minutes. I do want to end in verse uh, 12. Look at verse 15. Now, what, what the author does is really cool. He does this rhetorical, he asks three rhetorical questions, and then he answers them. So we already have the answer. We know what they are. He's, again, repeating Psalm 95. He's talking about Israel in the past. 
And he says in verse 17, again repeating Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. He keeps saying this. He'll say it again next week. He's talking about rest. He's talking about hardening of your heart. He's saying it over and over again. Why would the author say it over and over again? Because he doesn't want us to do it. It's real simple. I know that was hard to figure out. But three questions. Look at verse 16. First question. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? In the wilderness, during their redemption, during their deliverance from Egypt, who were those who heard? Was it not all those? All those who left Egypt led by Moses? What's the point? Everyone was together. They all left together. And yet, they didn't make it. They had great expectations. They, they, they were leaving the exodus. They didn't make it. That's the point. Verse 17, second question. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not? Question. Here's the answer. Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? 600,000? 40 years, 600,000 men left. They were in it together again, but they, they had great hope. They didn't make it. Third question, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? Who was it? But to those who were disobedient. Disobedient. Here, unbelief again leads to action. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter the rest, the promised land, because of unbelief. The Israel were not going to, the 600,000 men were not going to enter into the rest that God had prepared for them in the promised land because they rebelled, because they had contempt, and because they did not believe God would provide for them. Okay, you, you get that? And here we're talking rest. Now, the Bible's going to pick up that story. We're going to look at it next week. It starts in, in Genesis. God rested on the seventh day. There's a rest for Israel in the promised land. There is an ultimate eschological and, and rest that, that's centered on Christ. They call it Christological, where, where we're resting. Our final rest is in the, not in the place, but really in the person, and his name is Jesus. But here he's talking about the rest that the Israelites were, were going to in the promised land, that God would provide for them. That's, that's what rest means, the safety and security in God, in the promised land, okay? And the generation that left Egypt died, though. That's what he's saying. There were those who disbelieved and, and did not enter into his rest. And he's saying, that's a warning for us. Look back in those days and see it today and see it as a warning that in God's wrath, his anger, in the face of human rebellion against his kingdom, put a stop to their rest. They did not go in because of unbelief. That's the explanation. And we talk about wrath. Many people would say, you know, we can't talk about wrath when it comes to God. It's inappropriate response of God. It's inappropriate for him to respond in wrath. Well, I got news for y'all. Some people say, you know, God should be more like us. He shouldn't take sin so seriously. Well, unlike us, God's holy and perfect and without sin. God is holy and perfect without sin, and, and his wrath burns against rebellion. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is a deliberate, continual response in judgment towards sin and sinners. J.I. Packer has a, a really good uh, quote. He says about the wrath of God, This is righteous anger. The right reaction of a moral perfection in the creator towards moral perversion in its creature. So, far from the manifestation of God's wrath and punishing sin being more morally doubtful, the thing that would be morally doubtful would be for him not to show his wrath in this way, end quote. It's important to understand what the, what the text is saying. That by rejecting God's provision in Christ and not enduring in faith, we miss this opportunity to enter into spiritual rest. Again, remember the context. The author's writing to this Jewish congregation. 
made up of genuine believers in Christ and those who are not genuine believers. They are professing Christ, but they're not possessing Christ. Possessing Christ. They have not genuine faith. And he's saying this is a story, there's an, there's an example, and there's an explanation of why they didn't enter into rest, and that's because of unbelief. Hard-hearted unbelief. Rebellion against God. God has made a way for salvation. It's in Christ alone. If you do not believe, you will not enter his rest. Following me? John chapter 6. Interesting story. Jesus goes up to the mountain and feeds thousands of people with a boy's lunch, right? Five loaves and two fish. Kind of a Moses-like, Moses, reminiscing Moses as he goes and he feeds the people from heaven. Afterwards, the crowds are following Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and says, y'all following me because you want to eat more. And I, if I was there, I would say, yes, I'm hungry. He says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Son of Man, God the Father, has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. We want this bread of life. What work do we need to do? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe, (laughs) that you believe in Christ, whom the Father has sent. So ultimate rebellion and disbelief against God manifests itself in disbelief of who Christ is. Interesting in that story, Jesus continues to teach and they start testing him. Show us your miracles. What, what, what work do you perform? Let's see. Our fathers gave us manna in the wilderness. What can you do? He just fed them. He gave us bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, listen, <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven. My father gave you true bread from heaven. For the, true, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They tested him and he put it right back to them. And then he says this, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. And then you know what happened? Verse 41, chapter six. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said I'm the bread life that comes from heaven they're testing him they're grumbling they're not trusting in his provision they have unbelief which is the ultimate uh, rebellion against God in who Jesus Christ is this look back into the Old Testament narrative and even what we see here in in the in the New Testament narrative uh, in John 6 it's not about losing your salvation we're going to talk about that for a minute but but hear me hear me in love It's written so that you would examine your hearts this morning. That you would examine, the Bible tells us to examine our hearts to see whether or not we're in the faith. Are are you like the Israelites who because of unbelief, because of rebellion, will not enter into his rest? Or will you in faith make our calling and election sure? By trusting not in what you do, but what Christ has done. Resting on the finished work of Christ. James Montgomery Boy. Some people talk as though it is not necessary for a Christian to preserve in hope. On the grounds that since God perseveres with us, our perseverance is unnecessary. We are saved and we will be saved regardless of what we do. That is not taught in the Bible. It is true that God perseveres. It is true that once he began a good work in us, he will keep on performing it until the day of Jesus Christ, but simply because because he perseveres, we too should persevere. Our salvation is not based on our perseverance, but our perseverance is the evidence of our salvation, which is grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, in the work of God alone. And he picks that up, right? He picks that up. The story you see is told, don't rebel, don't disbelieve, don't toss and have contempt to God, but rest in Christ. So how do we do that? Look at lastly with me, verse 12. 
We have the example. We have the explanation of what, what it means to be in disbelief and, and then separation from God. Verse 12, notice what it says in verse 12. First, it starts off with take care. Literally, that word means to continually seek, to, to keep constantly, continually a watchful eye. Don't sleep, keep watching. What's so interesting about verse 12 is that our author, the writer of Hebrews, is not only an, an expositor of the Old Testament, which he's doing here, he's also a devoted pastor. This, these, these verses are, are from a heart of love. Take care, brothers. Brothers and sisters, listen. Pay attention. This is important. I don't want any of this to happen to you. And he calls them brothers. Some, some commentators say when he says brothers, he just means fellow Jews. I, I'm not buying it. I think he's speaking to a congregation of people who are genuinely Christ followers and some people who are not Christ followers, and he's talking to the brothers there. And then he goes on to say, look what he says, lest there be any of you. So there, there are some of you there. There's a, some of, Eleven has, has come into the fellowship. Brothers, lest there's some in you that, that, that are not listening, that have rebelled, look what he says, that has an evil and unbelieving heart leading you, what? To fall away from the living God. Brothers, lest there be some of you. Listen, and I'll speak to you here this morning. Maybe you're here because, you know, you should come to church. And maybe you, you're, you mentally assented to Christ, but you have not invited him into your life. He's not Lord. He's not Savior. He's just an addition to your life. Maybe there's an unbelieving heart. It'll lead you away from the living God. He's lovingly and pastorally, and I want to lovingly and pastorally say to you, there's danger that could arise with an evil and unbelieving heart here in our midst. Again, the context. Israel sinned. They didn't believe in God. They turned away from God. Turning from Christ, if you're here this morning and you've turned from Christ, it's more than just turning away from a set of doctrinal beliefs. It means turning away from God himself who loves you, who sent his son to die for you. Don't turn away. Verse 13, what are we to do? Exhort one another every day as long as it it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now that word exhort is the word parakleho. Para is, is a preposition uh, to call alongside, to be alongside. Um, kaleo is, is, a, is a call to, um, to, uh, to proclaim, to lay alongside and to proclaim. And it's the same word, or come, that's a noun, but the verb form is parakletos, where in John 14, he speaks about the Holy Spirit. John 14, I have um, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter, another helper, another parakletos, a, a, someone who will come alongside you and courageously speak on your behalf. That's what the word means. It's not just, hey, I want to give you encouragement. You did such a great job. That's not what it means. It is more, it's much stronger than that. It's not passive. It's active. Someone who comes along and courageously speaks the truth. When? To one another, where to who? To one another, speak the truth, exhorting one another every day as long as it's still called today. So how do we combat evil? How do we combat unbelieving hearts? How do we combat the lesson we're learning from the Old Testament? This urgency, we exhort one another day by day. Now, I don't know if the author means day by day or today, 24 hours. I don't think so. I think the author is trying to say there's, a, there's an urgency Today's the day. Now is the moment. Seize the moment you have. Day to day, encourage one another day by day. Today's the day of decision. Today's the day. This morning, will I walk with God? Will I walk away from God? I know this is probably not the most, you know, spiritual thing I've ever said, but think of this just in the context for a moment. If we are to encourage one another Today, every day, as long as it's still today. If you see one another, I'm talking about right here at King's Chapel. If you see one another every Sunday for 10 minutes and say hi, and don't see anyone else and connected in no way, shape, or form to anyone else, you cannot fulfill this command. 
I'm just saying. He's talking to a church. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be enc- that, that other people can't encourage us. I think that's, that's possible. But this is written to the church. This is written to the family. This is written to the people of God to encourage each other daily. Okay? If we only see each other again, how can you possibly do that? And you may say, well, pastor, you come to work and you got pastors around you. Like you got Christians with you every day. So, you know, that's easy for you to say. Well, I've been lead pastor here for 16 years come January. But I've been a believer for 32 years. So I know what it means to work at this, to build life together, to work into my intentionality and in my life to be part of each other's lives. Remember, this community is struggling with the problem of spiritual drifting, hardening of heart. It's both a real danger and and it can be avoidable, but it has to be an atmosphere of encouragement. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you, because or in order that, None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know that sin is deceitful? If you go, no, you're already deceived. Just telling you. <laughs> Do you have people in your life who press the gospel into your life? Do you have people in your life, are you involved in a community where you let people into your business and stop being you know, self-credited, self-protected and let people speak into your life? There needs to be people in your life that you give permission to to show you the need of repentance. In gospel community, we give each other a license to say, hey, if you see something, talk to me about it in love. Well, can people abuse that? Yeah. You have to be careful who you trust. Same with doctors and lawyers. Are they good and bad ones? Yeah, but I'm going to a doctor. I got an appointment on Wednesday. Like, I'm going. We need that. We need people to show us, to be honest with us, to show us our ways and our weaknesses that we would not see ourselves so that we can repent together as brothers and sisters. Think, think of it this way. If you are involved in community, and I hope you're involved in the community group. If not, you need to be. If you're involved in a community and you don't share your struggles, your weaknesses, the things that, that you need accountability, you need encouragement, you need exhortation. If you don't share that with them and they don't share with you, how can you fulfill this text? You can't. And what happens? What's the result? People fall prey to sin. And so we are to exert a watchful guard over our own hearts and come along others in the church to exhort them to do the same thing, to, to, to keep watch and to, to press on in the faith. Calvin said this, as by nature we are prone to fall into evil. We have a need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. The writer of Hebrews therefore wishes them, and us, to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into our hearts and by his falsehoods lead them away from God. Now, our hearts can be deceitful. The Bible says, the Bible says that when we get regenerated, and we're renewed by the Spirit, He gives us a new heart, right? It says we get rid of the cold heart, gives us a heart of flesh. There's a renewal, there's a new heart, there's a new identity. I get all that, I do. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that when we are renewed and we have a new heart, a new identity, that all our affections are solely upon the Lord. If that's you today and you just got saved and that's true, again, sin is deceitful. Just ask the person next to you. There's the new heart that ha- that's regenerated. We have a new heart that is pressing us on to holiness, to Christ-likeness. But we have to be careful because sin is deceitful for believers. Just read Revelation. Read the, the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. You'll change your mind. You'll see that sin is deceitful. The very nature of sin is deceitful. And we face temptations with with work, with family, with jobs, with things in our lives to walk away from the living God in obedience to him, but to do our own thing. Therefore, we ought to exhort one another. So let me get real practical before we close. Let me ask you this question, okay? You don't have to raise your hand. What does it look like to be walking away? What does it look like to be heading in the wrong direction? Let me give you some things to think about. Do you find yourself... Maybe hours, maybe days, maybe weeks without acknowledging the glory and lordship of Christ, the forgetfulness of God. Is your sorrow over sin 
really about what others may think or getting caught or is it really about what God thinks and your relationship with him? Is coming to church, hanging around Christians, being encouraged with fellow believers not very appealing to you? You just do it because you have to. You may be walking away. Are you so zealous over somebody else's sin and picking out and pointing out and looking at everyone else's sin than your own? You could be walking away. Do you in your private life really don't care about holiness and obedience to God? You may be walking away. That's why we need to exhort one another. Verse 14 to close. For we have come to share, be partakers in Christ. If indeed, and now the word partakers is New American Standard, shares is ESV. We have come to be sharers or, or partakers in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What this verse is saying is that we're a family. We're family members. We share together the experience of knowing Christ, to be part of his house, he said earlier. The heavenly call in union with Christ, that is what we share. And what's interesting about this text, just let me give you a little blurb of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the New Testament Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is important that you understand this. It's in the perfect Greek tense, okay? What that means is this. It speaks of an action that was completed in in the past, something done in the past, and yet it has present results. In other words, we could read this verse by saying this, for we became, in the past, partakers in Christ. If If we maintain the faith, we will show presently in sharing Christ that at one day we became partakers in the past. We're secure in the past of Christ. And now presently we are sharing our union with Christ and the gospel. In other words, if we persevere, it'll show that the past reality of our salvation is true. If we do not persevere, then it's not true. First John 1, uh, 2, 19 again. They were with us, they left from us to show that they're never with us. If you look at verse 6, we looked at it last week, the word if, again, is not one of maintaining our salvation based on our own perseverance. It is the possession of salvation as evidence of our continuing in the faith. That is a huge distinction that needs to be heard, to heed to. Okay? The word hold. You see what it says? The word hold in verse uh, 14. Indeed, if we hold, it's the same word in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 6. So to hold on to something, to firm, look at, look at again what it says. If, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end, okay, firm to the end, dependable, holding on to, guaranteed, and this is what the author is ending his, this, this text with this morning. Our original confidence that we are holding on to firmly, which is dependable, is not on yourself, but on Christ. It's not on your work, it's on Christ's work. It's not on your perseverance alone, but the power of salvation given to us in Christ, in the very gospel that saved us, is the very thing that will help us and continue us in the faith. So the gospel, the good news that I am a sinner separated from God because of my sin. God is holy and just and must punish sin. And Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, takes on humanity, identifies perfect with the human being, yet without sin, so he can die as atoning death for my sin in my place, bearing the punishment and the wrath I deserve upon himself. And now he invites me to repent of my sins and to believe on him. I'm reconciled with him. That's the gospel. And that is the same gospel that we have to hold on to fast, our original confidence. Because if we are in Christ and we have genuine union with Christ, we will persevere. And these warnings are just to encourage us and to help us and to to lead us, to provide for us ways that we can cling to Christ as Christ clings to us. So let us today, this day, hear God's voice and not harden our hearts. Israel had more than enough evidence of God's provision. Family, so do you this morning. Christ was crucified publicly. There's an empty tomb. That's a fact. He is risen from the dead. Will you believe in Christ? Will you hold 
to Christ as Christ holds to you? Will you heed the warnings and exhort and encourage one another in community so that God gets glory in all of this? I want to end with this illustration and the band can come up and listen to me this morning before you leave. Band, come on up. There's a fire. You're 15 stories up. You know in that fire that if you don't jump, if you don't jump, death is coming. The fire department comes, you see the net. And they're telling you jump, but you don't. You hesitate. You're aware of the danger. You know the net is the only way of escape, but you do not act on what you know is true and necessary, yet you start thinking about other ways. I gotta do something else. I'm not gonna go that way. I'm gonna figure out something on my own. There's gotta be another way. Simply knowing about danger and not jumping is destruction. Seeing and hearing and knowing the danger and yet leaping into the hands and harms of God. There's life. Some of you are on that edge. You'd like to hear these things. You hear about Jesus. You come into church. Oh, it's all good, but you have never made that plunge. Today's the day of your salvation. Don't harden your heart. Confess your sin. We're all sinners. Join the club. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Call upon him. Trust in him completely for your salvation. Father, thank you for these words, words of encouragement, words of warning. I pray, we pray that it would not draw us away from you, it would draw us to you. That you have provided all that we need. You sent your son who lived that perfect life we could never live. He went to the cross where we should have gone and died the wrath we should have died. Your wrath poured out on him and yet gloriously three days later the tomb is empty, sacrifice accepted, love and justice meet at the cross. Help us, Father, to believe that, to trust that, to rely upon that and to jump into your arms this morning. The God who loves us and provided for us, help us not to have hearts of unbelief but belief and rest and trust in Jesus alone as we continue to worship you now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.